So we're in Romans chapter 7. Uh, and and I, I probably wrote this message maybe three or four times. I, I, I can't even remember how much I worked with it. And, and, and I don't know which one's going to come out yet, but I'm, I'm sure it'll be fine. But, but I thought that, that I would go ahead and, and, and take a huge sum, uh, lump, thank you, uh, Daniel, a huge lump of uh, scripture this morning, uh, verses 14 through 25, because it, it is saying a lot of the same things. It is repeating itself a few times. Um, and it's probably best understood by, by looking at this whole chunk rather than um, trying to look at it piece by piece and look at it verse by verse because we could, I, I'm, I'm, as I was reading this, I'm thinking if we looked at this verse by verse, first of all, if we went through the whole passage, it would take me three and a half hours to do it. We don't have the time for that this morning. Um, I thought about even doing this on a Wednesday night. We may return to this. I'm not sure yet. Um, because there is an incredible amount here. It's a very important passage. But as I have mentioned to you in the past, uh, Paul does tend to circle back and, and to reinforce some of those things that he has written about earlier in this letter. And so it's important to realize that that part of it is what's going on. I will probably, due to time, not draw your attention to all of those in this particular passage this morning. So let me go ahead and read it to you. I'm going to be reading out of the New American Standard 2020 uh, this morning. Uh, I think it reads a little bit easier. I actually, I don't know if I'm going to use these. I brought an ESV. I brought a New King James. I even brought a New Living Translation uh, because this is, the, the way this is worded is difficult to translate. Um, and so uh, I think the translators did the best they could with, with, the, with the tools that they had. But let's look at this in verse 14 of Romans chapter 7. It says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am fleshly, sold into bondage to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing. Now take note of this. I do not understand what I am doing. For I am not practicing what I want to do, but I do the very thing I hate. However, if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law that the law is good. But now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that good does not dwell in me, that is, in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. Boy, that's a verse, isn't it? I'm going to read it again, verse 18. For I know that the good does not dwell in me, that is in my flesh, or my, 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 the carnal part of who I am. For the willing is present in me. In other words, I desire to do good. I desire to want to serve the Lord. I desire to want to walk with him. The willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I do the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. Isn't that interesting? I find then the principle 
or the New King James would say, I find then the law, it's the Greek word nomos, it can be translated law, can be translated principle, take your pick. I like, actually I like law, I think the New King James does it better here in verse 21. I find then the, the law that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully agree with the law of God in my inner person. But I see a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind. That is the law of God that I know and understand in my mind. There's a different law waging war in the parts of my body, he says. Wretched man, a wretched person that I am. Who shall set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. So, Father, Lord, I'd ask that you would just give us extra help today. This is a difficult passage. Hard to understand, hard to explain, hard to teach. And so I pray for your filling even now, Lord, that you would speak through me. And Lord, uh, help me to share those things that you desire for us to hear. Lord, I pray too that you would give us ears to hear what the Spirit would say to each of us this morning. Lord, this is such an important passage. And so I pray, Lord, that you would minister this to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. If you're new or you're wondering and visiting, one's water, one's coffee. No, I'm not two-fisting it. So anyway, uh, I'm not going to be going 100 miles an hour by the time the message is over. What a passage, huh? I'm not even sure where to be. I got notes in front of me, and I don't even know where to begin. But what he's doing here is he's confirming this argument that we looked at earlier in chapter 7. And incidentally, I would encourage you to read this through several times. The entire 7th chapter. And I think as you read this through several times, read it slowly, read it thoughtfully. Don't read it through slowly, thoughtfully once and then do it right again. All right, that, that, you know, walk away from it. Think about it. Spend some time with it because I, I, I think there is a lot here that really will begin to, to come off the page and, and the Spirit of God will make these things alive to us as we really spend some time with it. But it's a difficult passage, isn't it? Um, the, uh, the New Living Translation, which I think is a paraphrase. I probably won't bother with it today, but, but it does make it a little bit easier to read and to understand uh, the ESV is a little bit easier. I thought the NASB was probably the easiest. The King James is kind of difficult. Or excuse me, the New King James is a bit difficult uh, to really grab what, what he's saying here. But what he is doing here is he is confirming his argument. And what I mean by his argument, he is stating his case that the law is good. The law, we talked about this last week. Remember in verse 12, it says, So then that the law is holy and the commandment, that is, the individual commandments of the law, the commandment is holy, it is just, or it is righteous, and it is good. And so from verse 14 through 25 is one continuous thought that he's making the case 
to back up what he said in verse 12 of the law being holy, of the commandment being holy, righteous, and good. The law is holy. But sin, and if you noticed in reading this, he is again personifying sin in this particular passage. He, 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 he could almost attribute it to, to the powers of darkness. But he's personifying sin. And, and the problem is the, the law is good, but, the, but sin in our flesh is powerful. And it is sin's mastery over the flesh that makes the law unable to be fulfilled. Again, I go back to the book of Acts chapter 15 without turning there. In, in the first council where, where they decided what they were going to do with these Gentiles who were getting saved. And they came up with this conclusion of why would we put a yoke upon them that we or our fathers were, were unable to keep? that we were unable to bear. And, and, and so, again, the law is given to us. We talked about this at length last Sunday, if you remember. The law is given to us as a standard that God sets before us to show us of our need. Galatians chapter uh, 3 talks about this, to show us of our need for the Lord Jesus Christ in our life. And, and to, to show us that we are unable to fulfill his standard of righteousness. But because Jesus came in the flesh, died on the cross, lived a sinless life. I got a little bit of back turned around, but anyway, you get the idea. Lives a sinless life, dies on the cross, resurrects from the dead. His death becomes our death. But even more importantly, that we don't always, I don't think we talk about this enough. His life becomes our life. His spirit dwells in us. The life that we now live in the flesh, we live by the faith in the Son of God who died and gave himself for us. That's the back half of Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. And, and so Paul is making this argument, the law is good. There's nothing bad about the law. He said that in verse 7. He said that in verse 12. The problem is, is our inability to master sin which he referred to uh, where in verse 8 where it says, sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind. He says the same thing in verse 11. Sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. And then we read this in verse 17 where it says, but it is not lo no longer I am the one doing it, but sin who dwells in me. You guys are dying for me to resolve that for you, aren't you? Because it sounds like he's not taking responsibility. I'm going to leave it for a minute. No, I'm kidding. Kind of let it dangle. What is he saying? Is he responsible? Of course he's responsible. Of course we're responsible. That is, of course we will be held accountable. The problem with this particular passage, there's a lot of discussion and there's a lot of disagreement about what Paul is talking about. My opinion, and your mileage may vary, 
And you may hear somebody on the radio that's going to tell you different. I won't go there. Um, I'm dying to. Never mind. Um, this is talking about the struggle within the Christian life for a Christian who has now two natures. You have the godly nature, you have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, but you still drag along your fleshly nature with you wherever you go. And we all get to see it from time to time, don't we? Which I hate because you get to see mine too, but <laughs> anyway. And that's what Calvin believed. That's what Luther believed. That's what Augustine believed. The Eastern Orthodox, they, they think this is talking about someone before they're saved. I, I disagree with that. I think this is talking about the struggle that we have in the Christian life because I want to do these things. I really do want to do these things. Do we want to make, do we want to please God? All right. I think we all want to please God. If you don't want to please God, I, you probably wouldn't be here today, this morning anyway. Well, maybe, oh, I won't go there. Anyway, but the problem is, is that we have that battle within us. The flesh versus the spirit. The flesh versus what Paul calls here the inner man, which he referred to in the book of Ephesians. I'll get there in a minute. I'm dancing all over my notes here, so I don't know exactly where I'm going to land. But the thing is, in the book of Genesis, see, this goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 4, verse 7, where God says to Cain, Cain's mad. Why is Cain mad? You remember the story? Cain offered a sacrifice to God. Did God accept it? No. Why not? The Bible doesn't say. We can speculate on we're not all we, all we want, but the Bible does not tell us why his offering was not accepted. There was something going on, I suspect, in the heart of Cain that God wanted to deal with. Catch that. There was something going on in the heart of Cain that God wanted to deal with and get him to confess and make right. Therefore, his offering would have been accepted. Or he would have made another offering. But what happened? What did, and so he's mad. He's pouting. God says to him and asks him the question. He says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Or other translations says sin is crouching at the door. I tried to get one of you to be able to demonstrate that for us, and they refused to. So we're not going to use your imagination. Sin is crouching at the door. It wants to pounce on you. And sin's desire, see, God is personifying sin here back in Genesis 4. Its desire for you is for you, but you should rule over it. Its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So basically, Paul is taking Genesis 4, 7, and he's amplifying it here in Romans 7. That's what he's doing. All right. Incidentally, I believe Cain had the opportunity. I've already let that cat out of the bag. Cain had the opportunity to repent, but he refused. And instead of repenting, what did he do? He killed his brother. 
And one of the most interesting, boy, the Bible to me is so interesting. I don't know. So many things that are written that just cause me to wonder and to pause because it says that the blood of Abel called out from the ground to God. Now, later in the book of, book of Leviticus, the Bible tells us that life is in the blood. I'll just throw, that was for extra credit. You think that one through. Have some fun with that one. But that, to me, is intense. But what we have here in, in verses, and I'm going to kind of settle in on verses 18, and really actually verses 21 uh, through 25, but verse 18 through 20. Verse 18 through 20 basically repeats what, I, what was written also in verses 14 through 17. He, he's saying the same thing twice, essentially. Kind of a little bit different. In verse 14 through 17, Paul is saying he can't stop doing the things which he disapproves of. Paul is saying in verse 14 through 17, so I'm kind of giving this to you in a bit of an outline form considering the time that we have together this morning. Paul is essentially saying that he can't stop doing the things that he disapproves of. Now, don't raise your hand. But can anybody relate? Boy, I know some of you can relate. How's that? I'll put it on you. I know in my last church, they could really relate. I, I, I don't know how you feel about gambling. Um, I lived in Tahoe. Okay. I remember one time walking out in the church parking lot, and there was, one of, there was a, like a debit card from a casino there laying on the, on the ground. I was like, oh, somebody lost this. I wonder how much money is on this thing. But Tahoe was an interesting place. Um, but the things that I, Paul's saying that he, he can't stop doing the things that he disapproves of. What's interesting about that, guys, is, is that I hear all the time people criticizing other people for the things that they do because the one who is offering the critique doesn't do that particular sin. Or maybe they do. Most likely they do because, the, you know what the problem is when you see things in other people that you don't like? You know what really is the problem with that? When you see things in people that you really don't like, what you really are doing often is seeing yourself in a mirror. Boy, I hate that. I do. <laughs> I hate that. But we can, we can critique others. But I, but I think particularly in these type of passages, we really got to bring this home. Because I think there are places in our lives that we have trouble stopping doing things that we really do disapprove of. Now, again, my favorite saying, uh, most of us probably don't drink, dance, chew, or smoke, or go with girls who do, right? We don't, we don't do that. We don't have those externals. Well, maybe you do. Anyway, we don't have those externals, so to speak, but, but what about the things that we harbor in our hearts? The envy, the jealousies, the hatred, the difficulties, the, the, all those things that, that, we, that, that we harbor in our hearts. And, and boy, I, I, I was... Um, came into town yesterday evening, and as I was driving through town, I was praying, and uh, I had some things on my heart. Um, 
I'm still kind of weighing, boy, should have I told God that, you know? Some things that I shared with God, some things that I laid on God that, that he already knew about, things that I had been carrying, things that at least I was smart enough to keep my mouth shut about, but nonetheless, things that I did not leave at the foot of the cross. And sometimes in our prayer life, we just have to leave some of these things at the foot of the cross. Lord, I, I struggle here. I have difficulty here. Why am I here? Why are you doing this? Why is this happening? Lord, I don't like my life. Or I don't like parts of my life. And, and I don't understand why I, th this continues to happen and nothing seems to change. I know you feel, some of you feel that way. Some of you are eternal optimists, and you make me sick. But anyway, I'm kidding. But, but you know, some of you are just eternal optimists. But uh, I think sometimes you just got to have a, an open heart meeting with God. Because I know that some of the things that I disapprove of, I still do anyway. And it makes me angry. And I'm thinking, I've been a Christian for a long time. Why am I still dealing with this? And just to be able to lay them at the feet of the cross is, is, is helpful. Now, the problem with that is that often we wait and see, he's not looking great, I'm going to go pick him up again. We do that. <laughs> some of the looks on your faces. Anyway, we do that. But then the answer to that is to go and place them back at the foot of the cross again and keep doing it and keep doing it because eventually you won't have the desire to go pick them up again. That is sanctification. That's how you know you're starting to grow in Christ. Now, I have no idea where that just came from. I'm going to have to go back and listen to the tape myself. But nonetheless, I think that's for us this morning. Verse 14 through 17, Paul does, does, can't stop doing the things he disapproves of. And then verse 18 through 20, he, he reverses that, and he basically says, I can't, I can't do the things which he approves of. I had an interesting conversation with a friend of mine. I won't go into a lot of the details. And he, he's, he's writing his dissertation, and, and, and um, I was harassing him because I'm done and he's not. And, um, but I'm trying to encourage him to, you know, to finish, right? And, one, I, I, and I was reading Romans 7. So I, I, I stopped right in the middle, and I grabbed my cell phone, and I texted him. I said, dude, it... it because he's talking about the image of God, which I think plays in here, all right? And I said, but it, it is more than just being nice to people because they're a part of the image of God. The, the Latin term is the imago Dei, all right? And, 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 I, and he responded, he had a good response to me. He says, I understand that the, there's nowhere in the Bible that says that you have to be nice, all right? You have to be loving, yes, but you don't have to be nice. And, 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 and because... The, some of the things that I was thinking of, I, at times, there are certain groups of people that I don't really want to be nice to. Why are you laughing? 
because there are certain groups of people you don't want to be nice to. I know that because I've heard it out of some of your mouths. I'm looking at the ceiling now. Boy, I hate it at times when something flies out of my mouth and the Spirit of God right after I say it says, no, you shouldn't have said that. Or you really shouldn't feel that way. Or you talk about a particular group of people, then you hear the Spirit say, well, I don't feel that way about them. Wow. The things that I know are true according to what God has expressed to me in his commandments, there are times that I have trouble wanting to walk in them. And if you're honest this morning, so do you. Because they're not fun, and they're not always popular, and you're going to look weird if you do so. And God knows we haven't gotten past grade school that far. We all don't want to look like we're weird, do we? But Paul says here in verse 18, New King James. He says, essentially, nothing good dwells in me. Now, I, I looked up the verb, because you know I like looking up the verbs, and it's present tense. All right? Present tense is something that happened at a moment in time, but it has continuous action, continuous uh, uh, um consequences due to what you did so it's something that that you can almost think it, it remember greek is different than english it sort of happened in the past but it still has an effect today so and i still believe he's talking about him after he became a christian recognizing then in his carnal nature that nothing good dwells in him and it still has an effect on him today Way back in verse 13, we didn't read it this morning. It says, therefore, what did the, uh, what, uh, therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? Far from it. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by bringing about my death through that which is good. So that through the commandment, sin would be utterly sinful. This, this phrase, uh, uh, that which is good, that which is good is interesting because it's the Greek word thelos. Um, and it is translated in the book of Matthew chapter 3 verse 10 as uh, fruit. Talking about good fruit. And, and so it's kind of interesting how that, that, that works together. Uh, in other words... The goodness of, of, of God's word in our life is intended to produce fruit. That's the intention. You're not here because there's nothing good on television this morning. I would hope. We're here because we are sowing, hopefully sowing to the things of the spirit. So that we would reap the things of the spirit. But this is... This is the idea of what's going on here in this particular passage. It's, and this is important to highlight, although I'm not going to talk about it greatly. So just write it down and do your own research. All right, do your own reading. Uh, it's this idea, this is an issue of our will. But I've been dancing around that all, all morning, haven't I? 
It's an issue of our will. This word will is here six times in this passage through verse 15 through 21. It's, It's here six times in the Greek. That is, what is the condition of our will? What have we determined for ourselves that we are going to do and how we are going to live? I looked the word up in in the Greek uh, dictionary. It it means to have something in mind for yourself, to have a purpose, to have a resolve, to have a will, to have a wish, to have a want, to be ready. We have a will. And what Paul is interjecting in verses 14 through 21 is that sin, whom he personifies, overrides our own wills and overrides our own desire. Boy, you read this, and and again, I I interpret this as the, 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 the Christian life Actually, the Christian life devoid of the power of the Spirit. But I think we overplay that power of the Spirit card, which I'm going to talk about a bit next week or even on Wednesday. Yeah, I'll wait till then. But you see, the battle is going on. Sin, which is personified, overriding our will. Do you like someone to override your will? Some of you are very strong-willed. I made eye contact and looked at the ceiling again. Some of you are very strong-willed, aren't you? And you don't like anybody telling you what to do. (laughs) Somebody just, never mind. You don't like anybody telling you what to do. (laughs) And so, this is better. Okay, (laughs) now. But do you realize that the powers of darkness through sin tell you what to do all the time? Because sin is crouching at the door. But you must master over it. And if you do well, if you do well, you will be accepted. What does that mean? If you, does that mean you have to do well in order to be saved, to be in part of the kingdom, to be part of the family? No, it's not what it's saying. What was the problem between God and Cain? It was a fellowship issue. It was a communion issue. It was an issue where Cain decided he could go to God based on however he wanted to go to God rather than to humble himself under the mighty hand of God and then be exalted in due time. See, Cain didn't understand his relationship with God well enough because he allowed sin that was crouching at the door of his heart to take control of his life. And therefore, as Paul talks about being under bondage, being under bondage of sin. So Cain was under that bondage. And so we, even I believe as children of God, can be under that bondage because we still have a will. 
we still decide what we're going to do and how we're going to live our lives. Now, God can make it a bit uncomfortable, can he not? But believe it or not, I decided whether I was going to come to church this morning or not. Now, it might have been kind of an issue had I decided to blow it off, right? Much more so than maybe people who are not here this anyway. But, but we still have a will. Our will needs to be submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ in our daily lives in order for us to be able to fight off the forces of darkness who desire to take our hearts captive and to do the wills of the devil. And, it, and, and what I've found is sometimes a, a prayer like that in the morning works until about 10.30, you know. And then maybe you ought to pray it again. <laughs> or just go out in the back 40 where nobody has to deal with you, Right? So, he says here, to will is present with him, but to do good, he can't do it. In other words, he never really gets to completely do what he desires to do. It is amazing to me, as I was reading this again, it's amazing to me how loving and how patient and how long-suffering God is with each and every one of us. You see, as, as I read this, yes, it's descriptive, I think, of, of, the, of the battle, of the warring, uh, that, uh, verse 23, the warring that takes place in us. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm about to say. Well, if you do, it's on you, not me. Anyway, do you realize how much God really understands our struggle? When I read this, it's like, wow, you've got me pegged. You really understand what it is to be human. Of course, Jesus Christ, God, comes in the flesh, so yeah. But I, I sense the empathy of God in this passage for each of us. There is an incredible bout of empathy, but, but what I, uh, the thing is that God never wants to just be empathetic toward us and leave us in our distraught condition. But he desires to call us out of this. He de desires to call us through this. That's what chapter 8 is about. Therefore now there is no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 21, it says, I find then the law or the principle that is that evil is present in me. The one who wants to do good. A lot of different views on 
what this is saying and the language doesn't really help. That is, the Greek doesn't really help. But he finds within himself the law or a principle. I thought that was interesting. That is present in him. Identifying himself as the one who wants to do good. It says, for I joyfully agree with the law of God in the inner person. My inner person, I joyfully agree with the law of God. Yes, it's right, it's holy, it is just, it is good. And I joyfully agree with that. But then he says, I see a different law. A different law, it's important to, to make that distinction, a different law in the parts of my body waging war against the law of my mind, which is the law of God. The inner person, the law of my mind. Is it, 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 I'm waiting to see some light bulbs come on. I'm seeing a few of them. Paul is equating the, the, uh, the, the law of God, verse 22, with the law in his mind, with the inner person, because the inner person agrees that, yes, the law of God is good. So the inner person, referring to his mind, what you think about. But a different law in parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, making me a prisoner of the law of sin. The law which is in my body's part, wretched person, wretched man that I am. We drag around the sinful nature of who we are wherever we go. Even in church, right? And as I've, I've mentioned before, I, I do not believe that the carnal person gets better with age. They get worse. There's no rehabbing the flesh. There's no rehabbing our carnal nature. That's why Paul tells us elsewhere we're to mortify the deeds of the flesh that through the spirit we might live. And he recognizes his own wretchedness. But I, I think Paul is, is worried because he's looking at his life and he's, he's thinking about possibly his place in heaven. And he's like, boy, I, I stumble, I fail, I have difficulties, I have trials, I have tribulations. And yeah, I'm going to get in heaven, but I'm, I'm going to end up in the pastor section. So that's really going to be terrible, right? But as I've shared with you guys before, right? Oh, that was a joke. Anyway, um, I told you, I'm trying to work my way out of the pastor section. Um, most of you just don't believe that yet. What I'm hearing him say here is that he wants more in his life than what he's currently experiencing. He's aware of the battle. He's aware of the, the two natures that are warring within him. He, he's aware of, of, uh, of this evil uh, that is present in him. He's aware 
even though he wants to do good, that he's still battling these things off. And you know what? I, I think in some areas we are going to have battles in different ways, different shapes, different forms, different avenues, different situations throughout our entire life. Isn't that fun to think about? And he sees himself as a wretch. Who will set me free from this body of death? That's an interesting question. And what is he actually talking about? He realized that his fleshly nature, his human nature, if left to his own devices, eventually destructs, eventually dies. And, and as we're all getting older, I, I, th I think about these things more uh, than I used to. And, and I, I'm hearing what Paul is saying as I'm, as I'm reflecting this in my own, my own mind and my own life and my own thinking is, is that, that when I get to the end of my life, when I get to the end of my life, what is to be said about me? And based on how I have served God and how I've tried to, to please God in my life, what will my eternity look like? But I, I think what Paul is really getting at here is... As important as it is, set aside those things you do for God. Being in church, giving, pastoring, loving your neighbor. Those are all important, all right? Fulfilling your calling is very important. But the, the, I think what Paul is really zeroing in on here is who are you before God? What is your relationship like with him? Yes, if you have a good relationship with God, it's going to spill out toward other people. It's going to overflow, that's the spirit, to other people in, in, in service, in ministry, in, in doing the good works, in doing the good deeds, that yes, they are important. But the real question, I think, what Paul is really trying to zero in on here is that he is seeing a deficiency and therefore he is seeing a hunger and a desire for him to know God and to know God even greater than he does while he's writing this. To have a deeper place of obedience, to have a deeper place of, of discipleship, to have a deeper place where he is loving God even all the more than he does when he's writing this passage. 
He's, he's, this is an incredible invitation that God is laying before Paul, and therefore I believe God is laying before us and asking us the question, how deep do you want to go with God? Yes, because I think we can all admit that we are wretched people, if we're honest. So what? Because we have the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we should give thanks to, who has delivered us from this body of death. Even though we walk in difficulty, in trial, in tribulation, in feeling like we don't measure up, in feeling and and hoping that people really never find out the truth about who we really are as Christians and what our life is like, we and we're always going to have that struggle. It's never going to go away. But are you determined? Are you are you are you willing? That in spite of all the difficulty it is to be a Christian, are you willing just to continue to press toward the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus as Paul wrote about in Philippians chapter 3? See, this is an invitation. We read this and often that people, oh yeah, and we want to analyze it theologically, but I'm looking at this as a love letter from God saying, I want you to come closer. I know what you're dealing with. I know who you are. I made you. Because although it is not him who sins, he says, but the sin who dwells in him, I told you I'd get back to it. Because he recognizes what I talked about earlier, and I'm almost finished, that we are made in the image of God. We are made in the image of God, and therefore we have been made for fellowship with him. The chief aim of God, Westminster Confession, is to love God and to glorify him forever. That is the chief aim of man, to love God and glorify him forever. But we ought to take the week and just think about that. That's our calling. And yes, we have to fight sometimes to be in a relationship with God, but we don't fight God, we fight ourselves. We fight our, we fight our carnal natures. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but the, on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. Therefore, There is now no condemnation at all for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law.